As the uh, US-backed Israeli military continues its uh, airstrikes on Gaza and widens its scope to the West Bank and Syria, it seems an apt time to reflect on US military involvements in recent decades. Acclaimed essayist and novelist Phil Clay says that uh, all too often there's a disconnect between the American population and the killings that occur in their name. And he wants every citizen to take ownership of their country's military involvements. Phil Clay's collection of essays is called uh, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. It's been getting great reviews, including a big spread in my beloved uh, New York Review of Books. And uh, James Fellows, writing in the New York Times, describes the book as engrossing and important, a view that we wholeheartedly endorse. Oh, you might also know of uh, Phil's much-admired novel, Missionaries. It's about the US-backed drug war in Colombia. Let the record show that Phil's a former Marine who served in Iraq as a public affairs officer. These days, he's a professor of writing at uh, Fairfield University in Connecticut. Welcome to our little program, Phil. And uh, looking at Israel and Gaza, do you see immediate parallels with other wars that you've studied? Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. You know, you you never want to be too certain that you know this war is 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 like another one uh every war is distinct every war has its own potential pitfalls and yet sure there are certain parallels and i think that one of the things that folks have have been mentioning what happened to israel has been compared to israel's 911 um in terms of the death toll in comparison to the israeli population it would be sort of an order of magnitude greater, actually. And of course, the extent of the horror of what happened uh, is something that has really rocked people all over the world. And certainly for Israelis, it is a nightmare that they're still going through, still learning more details about that day and what happened. And it is the sort of thing that now seems to be launching a war, right? And of course, I, you know, I served in Iraq, I served in the global war on terror in one of, you know, several theaters of war that were launched from a similar kind of political sentiment and mood. Once you initiate violence, it's very difficult to see what the long-term political and social consequences will be, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that is, that's very obviously a concern for, for Israel. Um, I mean, it seems to have been part of the design of Hamas, right? The response uh, of Israel right now in which there's a massive air campaign. It's sort of, I mean, operating at an unimaginable pace. I think in the first six days, they dropped more bombs in Gaza than, than you know, the United States tended to drop in a month during their counter-ISIS campaign, right? And, of course, you have 
an accompanying civilian death toll. Uh, whenever you have even very targeted airstrikes, and of course there are questions which you know are certainly still being hashed out about precisely how targeted uh, the campaign is, whether it's taking sufficient caution for civilian lives. And I think you know there's um, plenty of reason to doubt uh, that such an intensive campaign. You you emphasize that Hamas is a proxy of Iran, and Iran, of course, is Mm -hmm. involved from the start. And, of course, Israel and Saudi Arabia had a sort of, uh, been having a a kind of realignment because Iran is is a, frankly, very malign uh, regional player. And, of course, in terms of, in talking about not just Gaza, but the broader potential for this to spill into other conflicts. Uh, About two dozen military personnel were wounded last week in bases in Iraq and Syria, right, Uh, from drone attacks from Iranian-backed militias. There's, of course, Hezbollah to the north of Israel. There's a variety, and and Hamas itself has received support and training and and coordinates with, with Iran. So it's not simply a conflict that could ever be localized just between Gaza and Israel. Tell me about uh, the involvement of the Houthi in Yemen. So there's also, yes, that this is another group that has been um, launching minor attacks, right? And and for the time being, I think the, the United States has been trying to remain relatively restrained in its response to that. You know, there's, there's real danger of, of this escalating into a broader war, though at the same time, you know, we've ramped up our military presence in the Middle East. We've sent a uh, strike carrier group uh, uh, along with a Marine Expeditionary Unit into the region in order to try and deter uh, a wider conflict in order to suggest uh, to to Iran and its proxies that the, the cost of entering this conflict might be might be great. Now, the significant impact on the wider Middle East was one of the results of the Iraq War in the early 2000s, of course. Sure. And there's a whole variety of ways in which, you know, that that spun out so many effects in the region. I mean, probably the most obvious is just the, the spiraling chaos of civil war or the, the amount of sort of destruction and loss of life in Iraq itself. Uh, the growth of of ISIS, right? I mean, sort of, look, groups like ISIS breed in conditions where you have failed political structures, a lack of hope, violence, and chaos, right? Um, all of which were present um, in Iraq in the wake of the the invasion. I think that you know, sort of, one of the the hard lessons that military forces need to learn and learn again and seem to have trouble learning is that even though theoretically war is politics by other means, uh, a sort of simple, straightforward military solution trying to to solve something simply with force doesn't necessarily lead to a better political outcome or a stable political outcome. And so in addition to, you know, just sort of escalating chaos and violence in the region as well as the growth of terrorist groups, in some ways the invasion of Iraq actually empowered Iran. Um, because, as one Iraqi politician put it, when the United States invaded, they, they baked Iraq like a cake and gave it to Iran to eat. Because, of course, Iran had all sorts of groups that they had links with prior to the American invasion and, and now has 
strong links with a variety of Shia political parties, militias, and so on. And so that kind of balance of power in the Middle East shifted with the invasion of Iraq in a whole variety of ways. And, and, and yeah, that certainly has consequences for the, the current conflict. This is LNL, and my guest is the author of uh, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War, and his name is Phil Clay. Phil, what's your assessment of the Israeli government's ability to respond to Hamas attacks effectively and fairly? Well, this is, this is the real challenge that they face, right? Because... This is a very, very difficult environment. And of course, as has been much discussed, Hamas is a organization that has operated in a way that almost seems to welcome civilian casualties, right? And the extent to which even a extremely careful campaign is going against a densely packed urban area in which uh, you have extremely precise strikes, right? You're going to have a lot of civilian casualties and an unimaginable amount of civilian suffering. I think, you know, one thing that people are comparing this to is the Battle of Mosul, right, where ISIS had taken the city of Mosul and the United States supported Iraqi forces trying to take it back from ISIS. Now, a different circumstance in a lot of ways. Those were actually Iraqi forces that were taking that city back. And in many cases had a, a lot of support from the population that they were trying to liberate from ISIS. Nevertheless, that was a brutal campaign. Yes, America tried to have a carefully targeted and precise air campaign, but, you know, uh, there was a significant civilian death toll. I've been to Mosul after that battle, the center of Mosul is shattered. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. I spoke to civilians talking about what it was like in those final days where they were crouched in in their shattered homes, um, hoping that the next bomb wouldn't get them. Uh, one father told me we were eating cats, we were eating rats, my children were crying, that they were hungry, and there was nothing that I could do. So a ground campaign through a dense urban environment is very, very difficult and will have a significant civilian death toll, even in even better circumstances, right? And Gaza has a large population, and Hamas has been planning this for a very long time, and it seems certain that the population of Gaza will have, um, there will be far less people with positive feelings towards the troops that are going in. If this has been planned for a very long time, and I've no doubt that's the case, why the hell didn't Israel's famous intelligence service pick it up? Well, this is one of the questions that the Netanyahu government is going to have to answer. Uh, in addition to questions about why the Netanyahu government in some ways welcomed Hamas as a counterbalance to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, yeah, people, the reasons people, why they for, were... people forget that, Phil. Speak to that just for a moment. So 
the current Israeli government, and I think this is this is one of the this is one of the problems, right? Because when you have something like what happened to Israel, there is a very clear moral case to be made for a military response, right? If your military cannot respond to a bunch of genocidal terrorists coming in to the homes of innocent people, tying a mother and child together with wire and lighting them on fire and having that replicated over the course of family after family after family after family. If your military can't respond to that, what can they respond to? What is a military for? Right? There's a very strong case, and certainly I'm sure that's how a lot of Israelis are feeling, that we need to do something, that we have a region to the south of us that is ruled by a genocidal Nazi-like regime. Right? I'm sure that is the sentiment, and it is a very understandable sentiment. But then there's the question of the government that is in charge, whether they are competent and whether you trust them to handle the necessary campaign ethically, right? And I think there are genuine questions about the Netanyahu government, right? They didn't want a two-state solution. In some ways, they saw Hamas as a good counterbalance to the Palestinian Authority because it fractured the Palestinians, right? And of course, uh, they could get away with never having to feel like they needed to negotiate with Hamas because Hamas is utterly despicable. And yet, Netanyahu facilitated the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars from Qatar into Gaza in an attempt to buy quiet from Hamas, right? Some of that money, which undoubtedly, quite possibly, funded the group's terrorism. And also at the same time, obviously, Israel has been roiled by domestic unrest. Um, he fired his defense minister, then unfired him. He has depended on a far-right alliance, which is how you know, they have Ben Gvir, who's basically a sort of racist anti-Arab demagogue as a national security minister. This is a government with a lot of problems. And, so, and a government that recently, of course, was uh, involved in the most inflammatory policies in regard to its judiciary. Exactly. Exactly. And so there are questions of ethics and competence when it comes to this, this particular government. And that's just something that we need to think about in terms of, you know, it's easy to sort of turn this into an abstract question. Is Hamas evil? Should Hamas have political and military control over the lives of Gazans, right? Obviously not. They shouldn't. They shouldn't exist as an organization, right? And yet, that question does not answer the much harder question, which is, Will a ground invasion achieve the kind of political ends that Israel wants? And do we trust the government that is going to launch that to do so in a way that is both competent and, and also that takes care with Palestinian lives? You say that after any of the conflicts of the uh, past two decades that the US chose to get involved in, the service personnel were left with deep moral anguish. Do you expect the same will happen after this for Israeli soldiers, but also for Palestinians who feel they, they have to defend themselves? This happens after every war. Absolutely after every war. You know, in the Middle Ages, uh, there are these penitentials from the early Middle Ages where uh, they would sort of declare what you needed to, to do penance for. And 
some of them would say that even after a just war, if you killed somebody, you needed to get the sacrament of confession, right? And receive repentance, right? Which seems kind of crazy if it's a just war. Why should you feel bad about doing something physically difficult and terrifying and, and, and hard and yet somehow necessary? And yet people who have close exposure with death, close exposure with war, it's, it's an evil thing. And those are fellow human beings. And so even in the best of circumstances, the early medievals thought that, that this was something that you needed to atone for, right? And that might not make sense according to a kind of utilitarian calculus, but it's definitely sort of felt by soldiers. I remember, and, and this is going to be, if there's a ground invasion, this will be a morally bruising war. It will be a brutal war through a dense urban environment filled with civilians. And that, yes, that is something that, that will not feel like simple retribution, so, shades of muzzle, but uh, you've also argued that there's little chance of Israel being successful in a ground attack, hence there'll be big losses. Why so little a chance of being successful? Well, so, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I don't know what their plan is, and Israel has been successful in wars before, so they've achieved tremendous military successes in the past. What I do know, we're looking at a region, um, you know, the population difference between uh, Gaza and Israel, you know, this isn't, this isn't a much larger nation, a sort of huge nation uh, just invading one city. It's a, it's a very small nation invading a city with a large population, right? Over 2 million people. And that is a huge challenge. That is a huge challenge. And it's against a group that has spent, you know, people will talk about the extensive network of tunnels. I'm sure there are a lot of things that Hamas has done to prepare for the coming invasion. Because, of course, you know, when they did this attack, they knew retaliation would come, right? I mean, in many ways, an attack like this is designed to provoke retaliation. I still find that inexplicable. What possessed them to fight the way they have, this appalling atrocities, given that the world would be horrified by them and uh, find their own organisation totally repugnant? Right. But at the same time, Israel itself is put into a very difficult situation. Of course, you know, I've been fairly critical of Israel in terms of, you know, how they're con conducting their airstrikes and, and sort of, you know, whether I trust their government. But at the same time, Israel, they know that Israel will take the blame for the death toll, that it will inflame world opinion against Israel. And you can see this around the world, right? And think of the, the hospital, well, the supposed hospital strike, right, which was initially blamed on Israel. And major news organizations ran stories suggesting that Israel had bombed a hospital and that there were 500 dead. And that news sparked outrage. It went around the world. And then it turns out that uh, it looks like that was actually a Islamic Jihad missile that failed and fell in the parking lot of the hospital. The death toll is, of course, probably much smaller um, but yet still significant. 
and yet it doesn't seem to have mattered. And when people talk about the death toll in Gaza, I'm sure those deaths are, are included in that as something that rhetorically Israel is blamed for, right? And so you have a situation where Israel, you know, deaths that Israel is culpable for get lumped together with deaths that Israel isn't culpable for. And all of the folks around the world who are inclined to harp on all the failures of Israel and sympathize with the thwarted Palestinian ambitions for nationhood, you know, it just further inflames those feelings against Israel, which is in the long term beneficial for, you know, Hamas's long term mission. The Rubik's Cube of Middle Eastern politics. Now, it is a, a fact, of course, that Hamas uses uh, civilians as human shields and uh, Israeli soldiers will have to uh, confront that. They will uh, be forced to make choices that they have to live with. And it is, as I said, it is a morally bruising battlefield, right? And I think that war is, is never a particularly clean black and white enterprise, even against fairly straightforwardly repulsive regimes. Uh, and this will be, this will be certainly no exception. Phil, I've just reread that uh, wonderful piece you wrote for The New Yorker after the uh, fall of Kabul in 2021. The title was American Purpose After the Fall of Kabul. Would you sketch for us how that sense of purpose began and how it shifted? Right. You know... I wrote that piece really right after, literally right after the fall of Kabul. And that was a huge blow. It was a huge blow to a lot of people. And I also had folks who were in the kind of evacuation community, right? So people who had been trying to help Afghans who lives were at risk because they'd worked for Americans, they'd been interpreters or done something else. And and so all of a sudden that work took on this unbelievable urgency because the Taliban was in charge and all of these people's lives were very much on the line. And um, well, you, you know, out I, 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 sorry, Phil, you, yeah, you outlined the, uh, the various promises that America made to Afghan people and then consistently broke and how that was always questionable what could have been achieved. Right. So there were, it was this feeling of not just that the war had failed, I think, but also a feeling of betrayal that 20 years before America had felt unified and justifiably a war, you know, that this was going to be war with a noble purpose. Christopher Hitchens, you know, quipped, Afghanistan, if anything, is being bombed out of the Stone Age, right? Which is, you know, a clever quip. 
but doesn't really describe the war. And so, but at the time, that's how people felt. Not only were we responding to a, a an unjustified attack, not only did we have cause just cause to to wage a war, but we we're going to make the country better, right? We we're getting rid of the Taliban, and we were going to institute human rights, and we were going to educate girls in school and all of these other things. And, and we did a lot of those things, right, uh, in some places in Afghanistan. And then it all came crashing down. Finally, the, the Taliban simply yeah. walked into cities unopposed. Yep. It all came to crashing down. The, the army that we'd spent 20 years building up just sort of withered away. Afghans who had trusted us, their lives were utterly at risk, sometimes lost. You know, I know people who were working cases, and the person that they were working the case for was killed. And and there was a brief moment where America remembered the Afghan war after years and years of not being particularly attentive to it, and then that, that faded. And so, you know, when I think about the situation that we're looking at now, I think, you know, I wonder about the long-term thinking. What is the long-term thinking, right? What is going to happen or what should happen so that we have a better, a better political situation in the future where we have better options for Palestinians, a, a way back to a peace process, some way of, of um, moving things in a better direction. Do we have that kind of plan after the invasion, right? After whatever military response Israel is planning, what, what are going to be the sort of second and third order effects of the violence? What is going to be the wake of that violence? What are, be, what are the consequences of that violence going to be? And do we have a plan for something more hopeful? Phil, what do you make of uh, Biden's handling of, of all this so far and uh, that bear hug diplomacy? Right. I mean, I think it is a it's a it's a pretty difficult situation um, to put it mildly. I think that we'll see because in some ways. I would have to know what is happening behind closed doors, right? What kinds of <laughs> how much hug there is and how much bear, which frankly is difficult to know right now. But I do think that offering support for Israel, trying to press them to take more care with civilian casualties, trying to press for humanitarian corridors, trying to press for aid, trying to also ensure that a broader regional war doesn't break out. Those are all those are all things that make a certain amount of sense to me. And we'll see how things are playing out. Phil, would you urge lawmakers in Israel and the US to heed the lessons from the past? <laughs> I mean, that's always a good thing to do, right? Uh, you don't want to be chained by the past. And, and look, I, I, I do feel as though 
you know, if there's an Israeli listening to this, they probably don't have a lot of interest in hearing from an American on how to wage war because our record is not that good, right? So, nonetheless, I would say that, yeah, there have been a lot of American failures and you should be attentive to those, right? Do you worry that America and its allies, and we are one of them, will be drawn into another quagmire? I mean, this is, as you know, as I mentioned, there are already a series of attacks from Iranian proxies around the region, and that is absolutely a concern. And that's why we've got the, you know, the carrier strike group and the MU and in the region right now. So, yeah, that is a very real concern, and hopefully, it will not happen. Uh, but you know, these things have a logic of their own. A logic. I wonder if that's the appropriate word. Phil, thank you very much for your time. Phil Clay is an essayist and novelist. His collection of essays under review at the moment is Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War, and it's uh, published by Penguin. Phil, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.